The Spanish word gorilla is the diminutive form of guerrilla, or little war. The term became popular during the early 19th century Peninsular War, when the Spanish people rose against the Napoleonic troops and fought against a highly superior army using what we now call the guerrilla strategy. The term guerrilla was used in English as early as 1809 to refer to a band of fighters during this Peninsular War. However, in most languages, guerrilla is not a reference to that particular group of fighters, but a specific style of warfare. The most concise definition for the term guerrilla warfare comes from Che Guevara. Quote, Guerrilla warfare is used by the side which is supported by a majority, but which possesses a much smaller number of arms for use in defence against oppression. Guerrilla warfare is not about simply defeating an enemy, but winning popular support and political influence to the enemy's cost. Accordingly, guerrilla strategy aims to magnify the impact of a small mobile force on a larger, more cumbersome target. If successful, guerrillas aim to weaken their enemy by attrition, eventually forcing them to withdraw. Tactically, guerrillas avoid confrontation with large units of enemy troops and aim to seek and attack small groups of enemy personnel and resources to gradually deplete the opposing force, simultaneously trying to attack the opposition's morale and war spirit. The guerrilla prizes mobility, secrecy and surprise, taking advantage of terrain that is difficult for larger units to use. Typically, guerrilla warfare relies on a population at large which supports the more smaller force, enabling them to shelter and supply the guerrillas and to slip in between regular civilian and soldier. The guerrilla also heavily relies upon knowledge of the local land and conditions, as is typical for the guerrilla to be fighting in their homeland against an invasion force. Mao Zedong summarised basic guerrilla tactics at the beginning of the Chinese Second Revolutionary Civil War as, quote, the enemy advances, we retreat. The enemy camps, we harass. The enemy tires, we attack. The enemy retreats, we pursue. Close quotes. Some wars, such as the American Revolution, have a mixed symmetrical warfare and some warfare using guerrilla tactics. While some wars have been focused on pure guerrilla tactics, such as the North Vietnamese used against the French and Americans, the Mujahideen against the Soviets, or even the rebel alliance in Star Wars against the Empire. Of course, to some, guerrilla warfare can be seen as the same as terrorism. Is a suicide bomber in Afghanistan a guerrilla fighter or a terrorist? Is Luke Skywalker a noble Jedi Knight 
or a terrorist. To me, the only difference is that a guerrilla fighter aims to win a military victory over an enemy, while a terrorist aims to cause terror and doesn't mind killing their own civilians. Many people claim the Chinese general and strategist Sun Tzu in his The Art of War, the 6th century BC, was one of the first proponents of the use of guerrilla warfare. Though if you've ever read The Art of War, you'll know how vague its strategies are. It's mostly pithy quotes that need a lot of interpretation, yet I guess that's the nature of ancient wisdom. The earliest description of guerrilla warfare in history is an alleged battle between the Emperor Huang and the Mayao in China. Guerrilla warfare was not unique to China. Nomadic tribes such as the Goths, Vandals and Huns used elements of guerrilla warfare to fight the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire and Alexander the Great. Quintus Fabius Maximus Verrocchus, widely regarded as the father of guerrilla warfare in his time, devised the Fabian strategy, which was used to great effect against Hannibal's army. The Fabian strategy is a military strategy where pitch battles and frontal assaults are avoided in favour of wearing down an opponent through a war of attrition and indirection. The object is to avoid decisive battles and be the enemy through skirmishes to cause attrition, to disrupt supply lines and affect morale. Perhaps the best relatively modern time this was used was in Napoleon's 1812 invasion of Russia, where the Russians avoided full frontal confrontation in favour of grinding down Napoleon until he got to Moscow. Some people make claims guerrilla warfare started during the medieval period, but again, this is largely limited. Perhaps the best known medieval example was Albania, whose military beat off a force 20 times larger in 1443, using mountainous terrain and using hit and run attacks against the Ottomans. Faint retreats and sudden counterattacks kept the Turks at bay for 20 years, something that prevented them from making further inroads into Europe. With the dawn of the early modern period, we do start to see a growth in guerrilla warfare as a general strategy. The American War for Independence sees a hybrid war with both conventional warfare and asymmetrical warfare. George Washington, as well as winning battles, would send militia units to attack and raid British detachments and forage parties. As well as causing over 900 British casualties, these dented British morale, one of the keys to guerrilla warfare. They attacked the food supply to slowly drag the British into a quagmire, not letting them at any point feel easy about being on foreign American land. And then we get to the Peninsular War between the French and the Spanish during Napoleon's age. After invading Portugal in 1807, Napoleon turned on his ally Spain and installed his brother Joseph as the King of Spain. As we mentioned in a previous podcast, the idea of nationhood 
and national identity was still an early concept in early 19th century Europe. Indeed, the early French Revolutionary Wars are seen by many as one of the earliest uses of nationalism in raising armies and boosting spirit. The French, during the early 1790s, were no longer defending a monarch or a lord, but the nation. This tactic enabled the French to raise armies the size of which no European nation had ever seen before, but it also enabled the Spanish to play them at their own game. In what's described as one of the first wars of national liberation, the British and Portuguese used Portugal as a secure position to launch campaigns against the French army, while Spanish guerrillas bled the occupiers dry. David Gates, in his book, The Spanish Ulcer, A History of the Peninsular War, states that much of the French army, quote, was rendered unavailable for operations against Wellington because innumerable Spanish contingents kept materialising all over the country. In 1810, for example, when Messina invaded Portugal, the imperial forces in the peninsula totaled a massive 225 thousand men, but only about one quarter of these could be spared for the offensive. The rest were required to contain the Spanish insurgents and regulars. This was the greatest single contribution the Spanish could make and were making. Without it, Wellington could not have maintained himself on the continent for so long, let alone emerging victorious from the conflict. Close quotes. Imagine if Spain had been pacified and Napoleon had another 325,000 men to use against the rest of Europe, either marching into Russia or held back in his German states. It's unlikely that without guerrilla warfare, Napoleon could ever have been beaten. Despite the effectiveness of guerrilla warfare, it was not always effective and can be defeated as the British just about managed against the Boers in South Africa. Guerrilla tactics were used extensively in the First and Second Boer Wars in South Africa, 1880 to 1881 and 1899 to 1902. In the First Boer War, the Boer commandos wore their everyday dull-coloured farming clothes, relying more on stealth and speed Rather than discipline and formation, the Boers were able to easily snipe at British troops from a distance. So the British relaxed their close formation tactics. The British changed to khaki uniforms, first used by the British Indian Army a decade earlier, and officers were soon ordered to dispense with their gleaming buttons and buckles, which made them conspicuous to snipers. In the third phase of the Second Boer War, after the British defeated the Boer army in conventional warfare and occupied their capitals of Pretoria and Bloemfontein, Boer commandos reverted to mobile warfare. Units led by leaders such as Jan Smuts and Christian de Vett harassed slow-moving British columns, attacked railway lines and encampments. The Boers were almost all mounted and possessed long-range magazine-loaded rifles. 
This gave them the ability to attack quickly and cause many casualties before retreating rapidly when British reinforcements arrived. In the early period of the guerrilla war, Boer commandos could be very large, containing several thousand men and even field artillery. However, as their supplies of food and ammunition gave out, the Boers increasingly broke up into smaller units and relied on captured British arms, ammunition and uniforms. To counter these tactics, the British under Kitchener interned Boer civilians into concentration camp, the first ever use of the term and the use of camps. There were hundreds of blockhouses built all over the Transvaal and Orange Free State. Kitchener enacted a scorched earth policy, destroying Boer homes and farms. Eventually, the Boer guerrillas surrendered in 1902, but the British granted them generous terms in order to bring the war to an end. The Boers had shown how effective guerrilla tactics could be, even in defeat, in extracting concessions from an opposing force so much stronger than them. The First World War and the Second World War were largely conventional wars between great powers. But many organisations, usually called resistance movements, operated in countries occupied by the Third Reich during the Second World War. These organisations began forming as early as 1939, when, after the defeat of Poland, the members of what would become the Polish Home Army began to gather. In March 1940, a partisan unit of the first guerrilla commandos in the Second World War in Europe under Major Henrik Dobranski Hubal completely destroyed a battalion of German infantry in a skirmish near the village Huskisar. Other clandestine organisations operated in Denmark, Belgium, Norway, France, Czechoslovakia, Slovakia, Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union, Italy, Albania and Greece. From the second half of 1944, the total forces of the Yugoslav partisans numbered over 500,000 men, organised in four field armies which engaged in conventional warfare. By 1944, the Polish resistance was thought to number 600,000. Many of these organisations received help from the British-operated Special Operations Executive, SOE, which, along with the commandos, was initiated by Winston Churchill to quote-unquote set Europe ablaze. The SOE was originally designated as Section D of MI5, but its aid to resistance movements to start fires clashed with MI6's primary role as an intelligence gathering agency. When Britain was under threat of invasion, SOE trained auxiliary units to conduct guerrilla warfare in the event of invasion. Even the Home Guard were trained in guerrilla warfare in the case of invasion of England. Guerrilla tactics were employed in the war in the Pacific as well. When Japanese forces invaded the island of Timor on the 20th of February 1942, they were resisted by a small and under-equipped force of Allied military personnel known as the Sparrow Force, predominantly from Australia 
the United Kingdom and the Dutch East Indies. Although Portugal was not a combatant, many East Timorese civilians and some Portuguese colonists fought with the Allies as guerrillas or provided food and shelter and other resistance, which is one of the most vital aspects of fighting a guerrilla campaign. Some Timorese continued a resistance following Australian withdrawal. The Japanese military themselves also used guerrilla warfare during the later part of the Pacific War, when Japan's resources were dwindling and the Allies had started invading. Tadamichi Kurabayashi famously used guerrilla warfare during the Battle of Iwo Jima, where the general used a network of tunnels and caves to attack American forces. His tactic was somewhat successful, delaying the Americans from taking Iwo Jima for 36 days. The same tactic was later used at the Battle of Okinawa. But perhaps the most famous modern example of guerrilla warfare is the Vietnam War. The National Liberation Front, NLF, drawing its ranks from the South Vietnamese peasantry and working class, used guerrilla tactics in the early phases of the war. However, by 1965, when US involvement escalated, the National Liberation Front was in the process of being supplanted by regular units of the North Vietnamese Army. The NVA regiments organised along traditional military lines, which were supplied via the Ho Chi Minh Trail, rather than needing to live off the land, and they had access to weapons such as tanks and artillery, which are normally not used by guerrilla forces. Furthermore, parts of North Vietnam were off-limits by American bombardment for political reasons giving the NVA personnel and their material a haven that does not usually exist for guerrilla armies. It should be noted, and always fascinated me, that one of the aims by the larger power when an enemy wants to use guerrilla warfare is as much the political victory more than the military one. If the Americans have thought the Vietnamese were an existential military threat, the military side of the victory could have been done with the use of one nuclear weapon over Hanoi. This point is the key point to when a guerrilla force can be successful. If a large power is aiming to win a military victory, then it can be very difficult for a guerrilla force to be successful, as the lives of civilians or trying to win hearts and minds is a lot less important than if the victory needs to be a political one, such as Vietnam and more recently Iraq. Much of the history of guerrilla warfare has been army against guerrilla army in a fairly well-drawn but asymmetrical battle. One of the key questions of guerrilla warfare is where the dividing line is between guerrilla warfare and terrorism. In the late 1960s, the troubles began in Northern Ireland. They had their origins in the partition of Ireland during the Irish War of Independence, but really the conflict goes back centuries to the Tudor period and before, when the English started colonising Ireland. The violence was characterised by an armed campaign in Northern Ireland, by the Irish Republican Army, British counter-insurgency policy, and attacks on civilians by both Loyalists and Republicans. The question is where the dividing line is. The British famously attacked civilians during the Bloody Sunday Massacre, but I don't think 
unlike what many Irish Republicans say, that the British Army's motives were terror dislike. I might be biased, but with all the recriminations after that incident, the reports, the inquiries, the press coverage, the recriminations, the British Army were not aiming to kill civilians, to wear them down and to surrender. Nor were there any overt campaigns to attack civilians. While the IRA and loyalist paramilitaries were trying to wear down the other side. In my land, the British were a military force, while the IRA were a terrorist force rather than a guerrilla force. Whether one would say the British or the Irish won is up for debate. But guerrilla warfare can be defeated, sometimes more easily than you think. Walter Walker was born to the son of a tea planter in Assam and found himself in command against a communist terrorist group using guerrilla tactics in the jungles of Borneo. Having already defeated the last of the communists in Johor in Malaya, he was assigned to defend Malaya and the dense jungle of Borneo against President Suarko's of Indonesia's dream of creating a greater Borneo. With no railways, no roads and very few landing strips, Walker found himself in the situation very few British generals have ever been in, having genuine autonomy. During his previous success in Malaya, Walker found the best way to beat guerrilla tactics, to use guerrilla tactics. In his own words, quote, Results could not be achieved merely by attacking and shooting the enemy and then returning to base. He had to be played at his own game, by living out in the jungle for weeks on end, by winning the hearts and minds of the people, and by planting our own agents in villages known to be unfriendly. In these conditions, your base must be carried on your back, and that base consists of a featherweight plastic sheet, a sock full of rice, and a pocket full of ammunition. The jungle has got to belong to you. You must own it. You must dominate it. Close quotes. As Niall Ferguson states, quote, Three especially effective innovations were Walker's use of border scouts, special forces, and helicopters. Close quotes. To paraphrase Ferguson earlier, border scouts were the eyes and ears of the conventional forces. They often blended into the background to memorise any trace of hostile activity and to track the enemy. 22 SAS regiments lived amongst the people, assisting with medical and other issues while spotting incursions. Using only the 80 helicopters he had, he managed to cover the third largest island in the world to ensure that the heavy weaponry could be transported rapidly, giving the impression artillery was in every forward base he had. The victory is little remembered now. Ferguson states it's because, quote, the defeat of the enemy was so complete, close quotes. There was no bleeding ulcer like in Vietnam, no atrocities like the British in Kenya, no loss of face like the Suez campaign, no jingoism attached like Falklands, and no strategic stalemate like Iraq and Afghanistan. Walker gave his recollections saying, quote, to dominate 1,000 miles of depth of 100 miles against this enemy and smash him every time he attempted an incursion was no mean achievement. 
Even more striking were the limited casualties. 14 British and Commonwealth killed and 590 Indonesian killed. In 1969, Walker said his aim had been, quote, to prevent conflict escalating into open war, similar to that in South Vietnam today, close quotes. To sum up Walker's success, he stated, quote, an army that travels secretly, mostly in groups, making rendezvous only at the precise moment of battle, cannot be ambushed. That is the way the Viet Cong usually travels. It is the way our soldiers learnt to move, and they did it better than the enemy. They outguerrillaed the guerrilla in every department of the game, though, through sheer good training. Close quotes. Sometimes to fight fire, you actually have to use fire. So why is guerrilla warfare one of the greatest inventions of all time? Well, the first reason is that it allows for resistance movements against oppressive regimes, even with the odds stacked heavily against them. This works for both good and bad, but an invention, an idea that allows for a less well-armed, less well-trained, poorer army to fight and beat a stronger, richer army is obviously a brilliant invention. Guerrilla warfare emerged with the wars of national liberation, even if there had been some isolated incidents before then. With the American War of Independence and the Spanish and Russians against Napoleon, it became quite common in Europe, but at the same time the European powers were colonising large parts of the world. If the Indians, Africans and Arabs had learnt the tactics of guerrilla warfare and how to sabotage and fight a superior force, colonialism would have been a lot less damaging. The British controlled India with 40,000 men against 400 million people would not have been possible had the Indians fought against the British using guerrilla tactics. With the dawn of guerrilla warfare in the West, in Ireland, the Boers in South Africa, and the Algerians against the French and in Indochina, guerrilla warfare proved an effective stop against imperialism. The Boer War was a massive prestige loss for the British, unable to beat a group of farmers. British lost its colony in Ireland, its closest colony, to a group of ragtag fighters. It was seen as humiliating. The advent of guerrilla warfare quickly spread after the end of the Second World War, with people like Chairman Mao and Che Guevara becoming theorists in the field of warfare. And as the recent history of guerrilla warfare shows, 19th century ideas of invading a country and making it submit to your will has become nearly impossible with the advent of guerrilla warfare. The Mujahideen against the Soviets, the Vietnamese, the Afghanis and Iraqis against NATO, the Bangladeshis against the Pakistanis, the list goes on. Guerrilla warfare is on the list as being one of the most effective reasons for the end of the pre-Napoleonic idea of invading another country and proving an effective end to colonialism. It would not simply be possible for a nation to invade now with knowledge of how guerrilla warfare can be used. And so, for that reason, guerrilla warfare is my 97th greatest invention of all time. Thank you.